thank goodness that God gave us his word that can, the worship can consummate, which we'll be doing now, Lord willing, if you turn with me to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2, and today we will be starting with verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Back to verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty. We're going to look today at one of the most, I think, what, what has got to be one of the most encouraging doctrines of the Christian faith, one of the most heartening teachings, especially when we're suffering, and that is the doctrine of Christ's sympathy. T. DeWitt Talmage, a great 19th century preacher, summed it up in a sermon that he preached called The Ministry of Tears. Listen to what he said. Take an aged mother. She is almost omnipotent in comfort. Why? Well, she has worked through it all. At 7 o'clock in the morning, she goes over to comfort a young mother who has just lost her babe. Grandmother knows all about that trouble. Fifty years ago, she experienced it. At 12 o'clock of that day, she goes over to comfort a widowed soul. She knows all about that. She has been walking in that dark valley for 20 years now. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, someone knocks at the door wanting bread. She knows all about that. Two or three times in her life, she came to her last loaf. At 10 o'clock that night, she goes over to sit up with someone severely sick. She knows all about that. She knows all about fevers and pleurisies and broken bones. She has been doctoring all her life spreading plasters and pouring out bitter drops and shaking up hot pillows and contriving things to tempt poor appetites. Oh, it takes those people who have had trouble to comfort others in trouble. Where did Paul get the ink with which to write his comforting epistle? Where did David get the ink to write his comforting psalms? Where did John get the ink to write his comforting revelation? Where did Jesus get his great high priestly sympathy? They got it out of their own tears. When a man has gone through the curriculum of tears, he is prepared for the ministry of sympathy. And we're going to see today that the one who is the most supremely qualified for the work of sympathy is, is the man of sorrows who was what? Acquainted with grief. You know, this doctrine of Christ's sympathy counters a false doctrine that some orthodox Christian theologians have held. And that is what's called the doctrine of divine impassibility, which means that God is impassible. He's not subject 
to moods or emotions. He's immovable emotionally, fundamentally, which is, uh, he's not fundamentally affected by what goes on down here. Rather, he's somehow insulated from it all by the fact that he's God. Truth be told, he stays cool above it all in this state of unaffected, unperturbed perfection, as one of those theologians said. It's the doctrine that God doesn't experience pain or pleasure from the actions of another being because, uh, because of his immutability, as they call it, his impassibility. These are big words, but it's kind of like God on Prozac. Just mellows him out, Right? Mellowed out all the time, or it's kind of like a Buddha god. Remember the, those statues of Buddha and perpetual bliss? You might call it the doctrine of divine uh, detachment. And though we might not hold to us, many of us experience shades of it. The feeling that, you know, unlike that aged mother, God's not omnipotent in comfort in a way that really matters because he didn't really have to work through that much. Well, the whole of Scripture counters this false doctrine of God's impassivity, including our passage for today, where we find not impassivity, but the doctrine of Christ's sympathy. That life in the flesh is founded on this was hard even for him. And what that means is this, it's in Hebrews 4, which is the best commentary on our passage for today, Hebrews 4.15, famous one, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find what? Mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. The message version puts it this way. Listen, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. just as maybe you did long ago from your 70-year-old grandmother. From the one who is omnipotent in comfort because he's been through it all. And the bottom line of what that means is this, just like he said, he knows. So draw near to him, just like you would an understanding friend, and you will receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now, if you remember the church at Ephesus, with that church, Christ announced himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, with the church at Ephesus, he began really, as we saw, by announcing his authority. With Smyrna, he begins by announcing his sympathy. When we go from Ephesus to Smyrna, we go from the, the hard-hearted church to the broken-hearted church. From heartless Christians to, to hopeless Christians. And he deals with them in completely different ways, and we can be instructed by this. We saw with Ephesus that when the heart gets hard, he gets tough. Now with Smyrna, we see that when the going gets tough, he gets tender. which is exactly how he's feeling towards some of you today.
Christ begins in verse 8 by calling himself the first and the last. There's a lot there about his sovereign care if we don't just read over it but take time to unpack what he's saying here about who he is. He's often a man of not many words, but those words go incredibly deep. If we have the faith to sit on them and let them sink in because he is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Master. This is really theology proper, the doctrine uh, about God himself. And so we do well to dig deep. After all, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which are, again, the first five words of this book. If you remember, that was his cue of what he wants us to focus on as we go through this book. His person and work, the fifth gospel. With Ephesus, back in verse 1 of this chapter, he announced that he, again, is the one who holds the seven stars, walks among the seven golden lampstands, and we spent two weeks on those two powerful revelations of uh, of his person and work. And now with Smyrna, he begins by saying, I am the first and the last, which is a reference to some of the most encouraging words in the Old Testament in which we see, really, Roman numeral one in your notes, the scope of his sovereignty. You see it all through the Old Testament. It's a tip of the iceberg name, really, of Christ, the first and the last. Passages like Isaiah 44, 6, which I just read in my devotions a couple days ago. Maybe these verses are for you today. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. He's talking to suffering Christians, as we'll see, suffering his suffering people. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me or any other rock? I know of none. This is a rock of a of a revelation. When he's saying, I am the first and the last, he's saying, he's saying, really, history isn't outside of me. I, I, I'm in and through it all, from the beginning to the end. As they say, history is H-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y, right? His, yeah, story. He's saying, I've got it. I'm sovereign in and through it all, from the beginning to the end, through everything in the middle. Is there any other rock on which you can stand when the bottom falls out? The book of Revelation, as we put put it in its near context, uh, begins and ends with this same phrase. The whole book proves that he knows what he's doing because it goes from this relentless tribulation to the glorification, to this speechless glory that we'll be experiencing. And so at the beginning of the book, in Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then at the very end of John's description of heaven, at the very very end of Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 21, 13. He's talking here about the scope of his sovereignty, which the book of Revelation is all about. And we need to see that because when it comes to the... 
you know, the scope of our lives, the story of our lives, it's hard to figure it out. We see, you know, just these broken strokes of a few words, maybe, that of the whole story. As one man said, he writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes. Try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right. And so, with the church at Smyrna, he first offers the comfort of his sovereignty. And then he offers, uh, tells us about the scope of his sovereignty. And then, Roman numeral two, he tells us about the comfort of his sympathy by which we can be assured of mercy and grace to help in time of need as we draw near to him. First we see the source of his sympathy. Point A in your notes. Reading on in verse 8. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. That is, what he's saying here is, I've been through the worst of the worst and now I'm experiencing the best of the best. Which is exactly what he said to John one chapter earlier when John was suffering through tremendous spiritual tribulation. In his case, it was over his sins at the very end of the chapter. And Christ offered the same comfort. We've already seen it. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, which is also what he said to someone, a church that was suffering, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. That is, I am the key that will do the same for you. And so he said, I know your tribulation and poverty. I've been there. It's the source of his uh, sovereignty. And I know I've got a a word of his sympathy. I know I've got a word that you should instantly realize a word that goes all the way back to Genesis, a very deep one, all the way back to Adam and Eve. It means to know in the most intimate way, in the most personal way. It's not just mental. This word is emotional. It is like uh, visceral. And underneath it all, what it means is this. It, It wasn't easy even for God, and he wasn't just play acting. Now, I'm afraid that I, in our theology, we tend to gloss this over again. And maybe we do personally, too. On a subconscious level, conscious level, we feel like he must have been pretending or something like that because, y- you know, you think he calmed the storm. And so deep down, he was just waving the wand over the rest of his life, too. And it wasn't really that hard. As though he's so powerful that when he came to earth, it must have been a breeze, at least by comparison to what it's like for us. But that kind of thinking comes from pantheism, Buddha thinking. (laughs) Whether we realize it or not, that from a divine perspective, what goes on down here is kind of unreal because he's a Buddha God. When, in fact, this world is just as real for God as it is for us. That's how great a creator he is. It's, It's painfully real even for him. And so it's not like he was 
play acting and the world was a stage and his blood was just really just ketchup, right? What's the source of his sympathy? Well, Dorothy Sayers put it this way. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to real sorrows and real death. For whatever reason he did that, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever he is doing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He exacts, he exacts nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. And he has himself gone through the whole of ex human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. And then she sums it up. When he was a man, he fully played the man. That is, he wasn't distant and detached because he was God in a state of impassivity. No, let this sink in. When he was a man, he fully played the man. He was born in poverty, she concludes, and died in disgrace. And he was not just play-acting. And neither is he now play-acting in his sympathy. Someone called sympathy, and I like this, two hearts tugging together at the same load. That's what our friends need when they're going through it. That's what we need. Two hearts tugging together at the same load. But people get so wrapped up in themselves, and, and it can be hard to find, even from your closest friends and family. It's like a friend of mine said, he was an elderly friend of ours, actually, back in our first church, uh, George Gregory. His, his wife was Mabel. At one point, he turned to me and said, where do you, and you may have felt this way too, where do you find sympathy these days? It's in the dictionary under S. <laughs> no one really knows you, nor will they ever. Like Solomon said, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can fully share its joy. Proverbs 14.10. So when push comes to shove, so often we're so wrapped up in ourselves, even those who we're closest to, even with our closest loved ones, like Longfellow, we're ships, what? Passing in the dark, in the night. So on the oceans of life we pass and speak to one another, only a look and a voice, then darkness again and silence. That's what life can feel like. Especially as you grow older. You're the only one who can put yourself in your own shoes. Other than the Son of Man, that is. Who always puts himself in your shoes and stays there because he's in you, which we celebrate in communion. Who begins here by announcing his sympathy, by which we can be assured of his mercy, of his grace to help in time of need as we draw near to him, and not just to men and women, to parents and spouses and children and grandchildren or friends. They're frosting on the cake, but they will fail you. But he says, I've been there too, I know. 
And how real was it for him? Well, again, he says, the first and the last who was dead. The literal translation there is he became dead. That is, it wasn't just that I died at one point in time suddenly. That would be easy, wouldn't it? What's the problem with life? It's the preposition, dying. And that's what he said, I became dead. I went through the whole thing of dying as I fully played the man. I went through dying just like you do. And what did it mean for him? Well, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, it says, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud cryings and tears to the one who is able to save him from death just like we do when we go through our deaths. Without God, he was toast. Without the Father, just like us. What was it like for him? Two words, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus, shortest verse in the Bible, what? Wept. It's an intensive form of the Greek word that's visceral. What was it like, Luke twenty two forty four, being in agony in Gethsemane? He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. It means he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, despising the shame so you don't have to like it too. It doesn't mean, don't feel bad that you're not spiritual enough to rise above it and always be happy. He wasn't. That's another false doctrine, by the way. It means he was a, a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, 3, and acquainted with grief. It wasn't like he was in a movie or a video game, you know, up in heaven and, or virtual reality. No, it was an actuality for the one who fully played the man. The source of his sympathy is that he became dead just like we have to become. And what that means is this, under it all, his sympathy comes in all sincerity. His sympathy comes in all sense. It, it, it isn't just put on. It's deep and rich. In fact, it's deeper and richer that you could, than you could ever get from a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a friend. And so he says, I am the first and the last who became dead, moving on now, and has come to life. This moves us from the source of his sympathy to point B, to what really is the force of his sympathy, the one who became dead and has come to life. Now, we've already seen a good part of the force, that he's the first and the last. He's working through it all. That's what he began with. But his sympathy also has a force because he's lived through it all, and he has come out to the other side to tell the tale. I became dead and have come to life. What does that mean, personally? I, I don't know about you, but I think the most powerful sympathy comes from those who have lived through it to tell the tale, right? They've gone through it and they've grown through it. They've, they've gone through it, so they've got the heart which is the source of true sympathy, but they've also grown through it, so they've got the hope, which is the force of true sympathy. They're the very incarnation of hope, just like that grandmother was. 
That's what he's doing with Smyrna when he said he was dead and has come to life. That's what he did with John one chapter earlier when John fell at his feet as a dead man. And he said, I was dead too, yet behold, I am alive forevermore, Revelation 1.18. And I'm with you in this. He embodies our hope far more than a grandmother could ever do. Which is what Peter meant when he said, we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's arrived to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, totally certain, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.3. People who get through it and grow through it who really know how to sympathize, ground you and give you a goal when you're going through it just by who they are and what's happened to them. And we have him, and in him we have hope as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, reserved in heaven for us as he, where he entered as a forerunner before us. That's where we're going, thanks to him. The incarnation of our hope. Christ does express his sympathy in many ways. He expresses it, expresses it uh, indirectly through the body, through flesh and blood, through you and me, which we all need sometimes. Flesh and blood love and sympathy when we're unable to connect with him, and that happens with all of us. But just as much, he wants to show it to you directly, just like we talked about last week of his love, or my mother did. Through his, uh, he wants to make live contact through you, to, with you personally. Through his spirit and his word and through worship and all the things we talked about, which is just what he's been trying to do today. Because the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Which brings up something else. This isn't just a generic knowing of us you know, corporately. It's a specific knowing of you individually. Listen, I know I am the first and the last. I was dead and have come to life. The one who does that says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That was the unique circumstance, at least a good part of it, of the church at Smyrna. Not just generic tribulation, but specific poverty. And there's a principle there. This is not just a public service announcement, you know. It's a private message saying, like no one else who has ever lived, I see the beginning from the end and I don't get the lo lost in the middle because I'm through it all and I'm in it all with you. And I'm specifically empathizing with a, exactly what you're experiencing. Truly, nobody knows like Jesus. which pretty much sums it up, as you'll see at the bottom of your notes. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Remember the old spiritual? Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows, fill in the blank, like Jesus. Bottom line is this. Let me just review because we need to let it sink in. This scripture clearly teaches that he knows in a way that is not theoretical, 
not mental, not just emotional, but that is actual, real, visceral. So much so that his sympathy comes in all sincerity. He's the only one who can put himself in your shoes. He's the only one that can stay there. And that's what he does all the time. We just need to connect with him. The source of his sympathy comes from who he was then and all he went through. The force of his sympathy comes from who he is now and all that he's become. Which means that no matter what you're going through, you've got two hearts tugging at the same load. And thanks to the scope of his sovereignty, which we began with, his tugging is not just emotional, but actual, powerful. In one direction, taking you to who you'll be in glory. Thanks to the scope of his sovereignty, he's taken you, as we say, from pain to gain, right? From death to life, from, from, from guts to glory. And it takes guts to grow old. Uh, we're just beginning to learn that. Because he knows your tribulation. Bottom line, Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through the weakness and uh, testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that it's not a coincidence in this verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture that we've been through that we happen on Communion Sunday on this very day. Thank you that the cross is a sure sign of his sympathy in it all just as we take these elements into us and of your sovereignty through it all as we look at what happened after the cross. And so as we bear our crosses, may we rest in him and may we hope in him and may we make live contact with the sympathy he offers in all sincerity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Bottom line of it all is that you can now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.